to Off Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. In this special episode, you'll hear me give the closing keynote address at the Aero Conference, Alternative Education Resource Organization, which was held in Portland, Oregon at the end of June 2019. And this was a pretty difficult talk for me to put together. There's a lot of delicate themes here, and it's pretty unlike any other talk that I've ever delivered. And so I, I hope you'll enjoy it. It's not too long. Without further ado, here's me. Mike Bowles. I recently finished the book Educated by Tara Westover. Raise your hand if you've read this. It's like a third of us. For those of you who haven't, this is a wonderful book and it's very intense. Uh, It's about a large homeschooling family living in rural Idaho, and the parents believe that the end of days is coming any time now. Religious scriptures are the only reading material in the house. Uh, The kids are genuinely sheltered, and the dad employs them to work in his junkyard, which leads to horrible injuries, and the family doesn't believe in modern medicine, so they attempt to heal the various cuts, burns, and concussions with herbal remedies. And one of Tara's brothers becomes increasingly physically abusive toward her. And she and many of her siblings show clear signs of academic potential, but they're left completely unsupported. Their parents discourage any kind of formal education. Despite all of this, Tara somehow manages to attend Brigham Young University and win a scholarship to Cambridge University, where she earns a master's and then a PhD. So this is a gripping story about family and loyalty and survival and what it means to be educated. And I'm sure to many people, it also sent a very negative message about homeschooling because Tara experienced the very worst kind of homeschooling. Thanks to the popularity of her book, in fact, I imagine that the reputation of homeschooling or unschooling has taken a big hit. Now I find myself reading another excellent book, one that just came out called Homeschooling, the History and Philosophy of a Controversial Practice. And this book has made me realize just how important homeschoolers, including extremely religious homeschoolers, have been and may still be to the broader alternative education movement in the United States. Two Supreme Court rulings in the 1960s held that school-sponsored prayer and Bible readings violated the First Amendment, which deeply offended many Christians and conservatives, as did the recent entrance of sex education and evolution into public school curricula. This spurred the creation of thousands of Christian day schools that successfully resisted governmental oversight, such as the requirement to have state-certified teachers or to deliver any amount of traditional curriculum. All of this took place, of course, in the name of religious freedom. The newly formed HSLDA, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, waged a state-by-state campaign to ensure that homeschooling became legal and largely unregulated all across the United States. And all of these policies aided the efforts of the more left-leaning reformers of the 60s, 70s, and beyond. This was the rare alliance between conservatives and liberals that John John Holt called odd bedfellows in 1979. 
And it seems almost impossible that something like this could be pulled off into today's political climate. This is one thing that makes working in this field so interesting, that I can somehow feel aligned with the family like Tara Westover's, even indebted to them, while also feeling completely turned off by everything they represent. Building an alliance among people of differing beliefs is hard. Staying receptive to people who don't share your values is hard. Let's dwell on this for a moment. Last year, I did a 24-stop speaking tour across the United States, giving presentations at small alternative schools and self-directed learning centers. And after speaking at North Star in Western Massachusetts, I paused to spend a week there to get to know the liberated learners model. North Star and liberated learner centers that follow its model hold a special place in my heart because most of them just serve teenagers, who is they are my preferred demographic. And they're absolute minimalists when it comes to interfering with young people's lives. Uh, the liberated learners model is growing, but it's not growing as fast as ALCs are growing, agile learning centers. Later that fall, I also spent a week at ALC Mosaic, which is in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I got to know the school and talk to its founders, Thomas Parker and Nancy Tilton, who are also uh, central to the broader ALC movement. And the ALC model is very smart. Uh, it's an open source toolkit that any organization can adopt from a tiny homeschooling co-op to a full-blown alternative school. This means it's easy to spread, but it's also hard to pin down exactly what an ALC is. Uh, the most consistent feature seems to be that there are morning intentions, afternoon reflections, and weekly consent-based change-up meetings that are sort of the same thing as an all-school meeting in a democratic free school. At ALC Mosaic, all of these activities are required, which presents a higher level of structure, some might call interference, than liberated learner centers or Sudbury schools. So I ended up writing an article that compared these three large and growing models, and I'm friends with people in all three of these worlds, and I know that there's tension between them sometimes. We have squabbles and rivalries and factions and infighting. The Sudbury people criticize the Liberated Learner Centers, who question the Agile Learning Centers, who scoff, of course, at mere progressive schools, who they themselves question democratic free schools, who in turn wouldn't touch a charter school with a 10-foot pole, and those people simply can't fathom why anyone would choose to homeschool or unschool, and on and on. Sometimes this infighting nurtures a healthy debate. It's the marketplace of ideas. Like the community of science, good-natured criticism can help drive progress. Other times, it feels like destructive family squabbling, or the politics of the left I observed among my fellow students at UC Berkeley, where the anarchists wouldn't talk to the democratic socialists, who won't talk to the Democrats, who think the communists are crazy, who they themselves are split into countless bickering subgroups. When you're immersed in our little world, Agile Learning Centers, Liberated Learner Centers, Sudbury Schools, and all of the other alternatives to school out there that don't share one of these affiliations appear quite distinct. Different people, different priorities, different practices, different cultures. It almost feels like Game of Thrones. 
We've got the North, the Vale, the Stormlands, the Reach, the Westerlands, the Iron Islands, and Dorne. Excuse me for alienating anyone who doesn't watch Game of Thrones, but this is really the only moment in history that I can make this reference. I appreciate your patience. Of course, when you zoom out on Game of Thrones, you quickly see that they're more or less a bunch of similar people who share similar values. Zoom out on the alternative education world, and I think we see something similar. Although I don't know who the Night King or the dragons are in this scenario. Maybe you can tell me. This all makes me think of Jonathan Haidt's wonderful 2012 book, The Righteous Mind, in which he describes a theory of social psychology which he calls moral foundations theory. This separates human morality into five broad categories. First category is care, cherishing and protecting others. The opposite of this is harm. The second is fairness, rendering justice according to shared rules. The opposite is cheating. Next is loyalty, which is about standing with your group, your family, or your nation. The opposite is betrayal. The fourth is authority, submitting to tradition and what is perceived to be legitimate authority. The opposite is subversion. And the fifth is sanctity, abhorrence for disgusting things, foods, actions. The opposite is degradation. These five moral foundations exist all over the world in virtually every culture. And Haight's research said that people who identify as political liberals focus more on the first two categories, care and fairness, while conservatives focus equally on all five categories which means they focus a bit less on the first two. It also happens that those first two moral foundations, the ones favored by liberals, are individual-oriented. And the latter three, the ones that conservatives value more, are group-focused, or what Haight calls the binding morals. Conservatives are better at submitting to authority and forming a unified group that stands together. The implications here are clear. Uh, Left-leaning people are more likely to splinter off into individualized warring factions, each believing that their unique version of care and fairness is the best one. This explains my experience among leftist groups in college. This explains modern liberal politics. And it explains what happens in the alternative education and self-directed learning worlds when we find ourselves defending our turfs carving out our niches, and building our little fiefdoms, even when we are so alike. And this brings me to the Sudbury Valley School. On my speaking tour, I happened to be in Boston at the same time that the the Sudbury Valley School had an open house, and so I decided to attend. Some of you might know that it's notoriously difficult to visit Sudbury Valley, and I'd only been there once before when I was 21. Uh, This was when I was in college, and I was organizing a class called Never Taught to Learn through the Democratic Education Program that was at Berkeley. So I was teaching a class to other undergraduates about education theory, and I was slightly naive at the time. And I thought that you could just photocopy anyone's books and turn them into a college reader because intellectual freedom. Uh, I posted my curriculum on the course website, and I think I emailed the course website to Daniel Greenberg and Mimsy Sadovsky, 
the founders of Sudbury Valley. And a little bit later, I got an unsolicited one-line email from Daniel Greenberg. And it said, hey, Blake, I noticed that you're using some of our books in your course. Could you tell me specifically which books and how many pages? And I thought, OK, honesty is the best medicine. And so I responded honestly. I used more than half of the book um, free at last. And a few days later, I got a scathing response from Mimsy Sadovsky, who said, you have violated intellectual property rights. You owe us royalties. This is horrible. And I felt genuinely bad because uh, I wasn't aware of what I'd done. And now I realized, oh, I can't, I can't just photocopy other people's work and hand it out for free. And so I, I wrote a royalty check to Sudbury Valley out of my personal account. And I hand wrote a very sincere apology letter. And at the very end of the letter, I said, you know, the only reason that I did this is because I admire your school so much. And by the way, I'll be out on the East Coast next month. Is there any chance I could visit? <laughs> and to my unending delight, they said yes. They said they passed the letter around. The staff read it, and they were all touched. And yes, I could come visit. So I went to go visit at age 21, and I was terrified. And, but I met Dan and Mimsy and other staff, and everyone was very nice. Uh, but going back to this open house, I was still terrified. Because I wasn't a parent. You're not supposed to go there if you're not a prospective family. But I showed up anyway. And I was still nervous. But Daniel Greenberg and Mimsy Sadovsky greeted me warmly and very friendly. They remembered who I was. Uh, I, got a, I got a full tour and what an incredibly beautiful campus they have. Uh, I talked with parents and staff. And it reminded me of all the reasons I fell in love with Sudbury in the first place. And seeing all the books that Daniel had written, along with Mimsy and a few other authors, was so impressive. They've written dozens at this point. And these books were a big gateway for me into the alternative education world, because they're written in such simple, accessible language, filled with concrete stories. The SVS books, I think, are a clear example for anyone who wants to develop and spread an alternative school model. And Sudbury schools are all over North America and the world now. Yet the Sudbury Valley School isn't any different from the rest of us uh, in that they succumb to the same groupish instincts. During the open house, I received a literature packet with some printed out articles from their blog. One of them was titled, Let's Be Clear, Sudbury Valley School and the Unschooling Have Nothing in Common. <laughs> Unschooling was spelled with a dash between un and schooling, and nothing was spelled in all caps. Daniel Greenberg had written this a few years ago, pulling excerpts from Pat Ferenga's website, and also two websites I'm not very familiar with, unschooling.com and unschoolers.org. And he proceeded to build an unschooling straw man and then tear it apart. But the straw man betrayed such an unrealistic and uninformed version of unschoolers who are an incredibly diverse crowd, both ideologically and practically, much like Sudbury Valley School parents are, I'm sure, that I could not take it seriously. Uh, I have no doubt that the article was written from genuine experience. Something that Greenberg wrote was that Sudbury Valley has now had five decades of experience with large numbers of unschooling parents who inquired about enrolling their children in the school. 
and I'm sure that's true, but still the article betrayed a lack of time spent around actual unschoolers in the greater world. Uh, one thing that Greenberg wrote was a kind of fatalistic declaration that once you're an unschooler, you're always an unschooler. <laughs> Meaning that unschooling will ruin a kid's chances of successfully participating in a community like Sudbury Valley. He asserted that unschoolers who enroll at Sudbury Valley often find themselves confused and at a loss about what to do with themselves all day. And that they, quote, rarely, <coughs> rarely possess the social skills that other students have developed. Again, perhaps this is true in their experience, but what an incredible leap to generalize from this tiny subset to the broader unschooling movement. A 2014 article by Mimsy Sadovsky on a similar topic, the question of whether a Sudbury school is essentially just unschooling with babysitting. Uh, she claimed that an unschooled child's ability to interact with anyone outside of the family is strictly curtailed for many years. I know so many unschoolers who lead incredibly social lives with huge numbers of connections outside their homes. The main argument that Greenberg and Sadovsky seem to be making is that Sudbury students learn a lot from being a part of their democratically run community. And they're surrounded by kids of all ages, including non-parental adults. And this is a good thing. And I agree with them. And I think that it's a big advantage that Sudbury schools and other places like democratic free schools, liberated learner centers, ALCs, even progressive schools can have over the various flavors of homeschooling. But for someone as knowledgeable and prominent as Daniel Greenberg to say that places like Sudbury Valley and unschooling have capital N-O-T-H-I-N-G, nothing in common, strikes me as the grossest, <clears throat> the grossest form of needless infighting and turf defending. All you have to do is take the perspective of someone who is inside the conventional school system to see how alike all of our approaches are. When I zoom really far out and define conventional education, here's what I think of. Mandatory curriculum, standardized testing and homework, narrow age grouping, grades, a traditional power hierarchy, little freedom of physical movement, little autonomy for the teachers, facilitators, or other adults, little privacy for anyone, a closed campus, and specific hours of arrival and departure, and also the requirement to show up all five days a week. Conversely, a more unconventional or a self-directed approach is going to look like something that doesn't have mandatory curriculum, standardized testing, grades, or homework, where there's full age mixing, real decision-making power for young people, real freedom of physical movement, high autonomy for the adults, high personal privacy, an open campus, and flexible arrival, arrival and departure hours, including flexible weekly schedules. So in the big picture, the Sudbury Valley School and the unschooling are incredibly close neighbors. But that's hard to see when we're lost in the weeds, focused on our own little patch of territory, Ideologies bind and blind us, Jonathan Haidt writes. They bind people together in cohesive groups and also blind them to larger truths. It feels good to imagine that your own little group has found all the answers. But how helpful is that for the kid who's suffering in the conventional school system? 
for their parents who are suffering alongside them. To these people, unschooling and Sudbury schools and everything else represent essentially the same thing, a lifeline. And that's what I think we need to focus on as we move forward. The incredible good that all these different alternatives do for young people who are languishing in the conventional system. By casting as wide a net as possible and highlighting similarities long before we highlight differences, we can become more friendly and inviting to families who are entering this new and very scary world. And hearing a message like, hey, you've decided not to take the conventional path. That's great. Welcome to the clubhouse. It's good promotion for all of us. Here's something else I've noticed in 15 years of bouncing around this alternative education world. Lots of kids and families are bouncing around it too, like busy bees. They're not choosing one approach and sticking with it. A kid who starts in a Montessori preschool or a Waldorf elementary might then homeschool for a while and then go to a more alternative school for a few years, maybe even attend public school, and then go back to an alternative school or do some unschooling, take community college classes at the same time, and on and on. One of the teens I met at North Star, Nolan, is the son of a staff member there. He grew up around the North Star community, and he attended for a couple years once he was old enough to do so. But then he chose to go back to school. He went to a performing arts charter school for 7th and 8th grade because he wanted to do the kind of stuff you can only do at a well-resourced public school with lots of other kids your age who have similar motivations. And after that, he returned to North Star. He's happily ensconced there at age 15 now. But even at North Star, he only attends three days a week. The other two days, Nolan does craft projects and food projects at home. He takes violin lessons and ballet lessons. His educational path, both on the macro and the micro scale, is a flexible mixture of structured and unstructured elements, all self-chosen with the loving support of his family. Another teenager, Kate, who came on one of my unschool adventures trips to Southeast Asia, uh, her mom was a former public school educator, like so many moms I know in this world. And she and her husband decided to uproot their four kids from Florida and live on a boat for a while, joining the ever-growing ranks of self-proclaimed world schoolers across the globe. On this unschool adventures trip, Kate and I talked about her intention to go to college, which was clear. Uh, and how she was planning on describing her very non-traditional education to college admissions people. I ended up helping Kate design her admissions portfolio, which included a narrative description of her journey. And I'm going to read a, a short abridged part of that right now, because I think it exemplifies how kids flow in and out of different educational environments in the modern day. Kate writes, I went to public school through the sixth grade, after which my parents decided to expand our view of the world the next summer and moved us onto a boat in the Caribbean. I began boat schooling with my mother, who is a former high school math teacher, which we also sometimes call eclectic homeschooling. In my middle school years, I began taking online high school courses from the Florida Virtual School, an accredited online public school. These courses supplemented my homeschooling in science, history, French, and language arts. We studied cultures, history, and geography by experiencing these things traveling in different countries. In my freshman year of high school, I continued this combination of homeschooling and online courses. 
And that year we moved off the boat and started living in Portugal. In my sophomore year, I wanted to try out regular school. So I lived with family friends in Tennessee and attended public school for a semester. I loved it. I was able to take things like drama and orchestra as well as honors level courses. The next semester I went back to Portugal, continued my homeschooling, virtual school work and traveling. In my junior and senior year, I'm doing more part-time virtual school work along with a large number of self-directed projects and independent studies. I'm taking online university courses as well as CLEP and SAT subject tests to show that I can handle competitive college academics. Keep in mind that this portfolio was written to appeal to college admissions people, so it emphasizes her formal schoolwork and frames everything in the language of conventional school. But after traveling with Kate for seven weeks, I can attest to the fact that she is not actually obsessed with academics and getting into college and racked with anxiety. Uh, she's very well balanced, and she was just recently accepted to Florida State University, and she'll be spending her first year living abroad in London. What stories like Kate's and Nolan's represent to me is what a flexible and non-dogmatic approach to education looks like today. Each of these young people did some combination of formal and informal learning, school and unschool, public and private, that changed as their needs and interests evolved. They remained agnostic and open-minded, aware and responses of whatever the stages of their young lives demanded. The theme of this conference is where we've been and where we're going, and I think that this kind of flexibility is clearly where we're going, and that's something to be proud of. I believe we can be helpful to the families we're serving in this regard by seeing each other as members of the same big team. And this is already happening. Over the past few years, I've been happy to see the Alliance for Self-Directed Education take off, which is the nonprofit founded by Peter Gray, along with a big, diverse team of supporters and board members. They're casting a wide net and uniting many smaller players. Aero, of course, has been doing this for decades as well. Next month, I'm trying to make a contribution to this effort by bringing together a group of people in their 20s and 30s who share the goal of trying to make their living full-time in the world of self-directed education. So we're going to do a sort of young professionals retreat where people representing many different approaches can meet and get to know each other so the next generation of leaders might start off better connected. I'm also working on a new not-for-profit website, grownunschoolers.com, which will feature hundreds of very detailed narrative profiles of adults who unschooled or otherwise heavily self-directed, and they will be written in their own words. And of course, lots of little profiles like this all, you know, exist, but they're they're locked away in books, or they're very short anecdotes that new families might find hard to trust. Uh, so I've recruited a grown unschooler in Austin, Texas, who is volunteering her time to gather and edit these interviews, and hopefully later this year we'll have a first draft. As I mentioned before, the Sudbury Valley School has done an incredible job of publishing books about their approach, and I believe that those have contributed more than anything else to spreading the Sudbury model across the world. So let's keep writing books. A few that have passed across my proverbial desk in recent years include Ken Danford's book, Learning is Natural, School is Optional. You might have heard him raving about it last night over dinner. Uh, Joel Hammond's book, The Teacher Liberation Handbook. And both of these 
of course, described North Star in the Liberated Learners model in great detail. And Joel's book, of course, is based on the classic Teenage Liberation Handbook by Grace Llewellyn, which I believe has done more to inspire unschooling families than anyone save John Holt. The latest edition of the Teenage Liberation Handbook came out 20 years ago. I bought a used copy for my younger sister, who's 18, and read through it, and I thought, oh man, this needs to be updated. So I'm working with Grace to help publish, edit and publish the third and final edition of her book. Harry McDonald just published Unschooled, which I think has a wonderful and very balanced overview of the many alternative schools and homeschool-based options. And Jim Reitmulder recently published When Kids Rule the School, which does an incredibly good job of describing day-to-day life in a democratic preschool. And there's so many other good books out there. I am just presenting a very narrow, biased slice, of course. And there are some writers who are only publishing their content online, like Carol Black, whose essays are essentially works of art that need to be hung in galleries. My all-time favorite author, John Taylor Gatto, passed away just before New Year's. Gatto's books inspired me to help get off my assumed track of becoming a scientist or at least a high school science teacher. And uh, he intellectually hijacked me in the middle of my college major and inspired me to create my own degree to study uh, the theories behind alternative education full-time. He and I later corresponded and became friends, and his encouragement kept me pushing forward in my 20s, even as I had no idea how to make a living in this field. I'm still working on that, by the way. (laughs) Gatto was a flawed human being, just like all of us. And some people trash-talked him after his death uh, for his political leanings and a few choices he made in his personal life. Uh, Does any of this erase the good that he did for thousands of students over a 30-year career or countless others who benefited from his books lectures, and hours spent advocating for alternatives to coercive schooling? I don't think so. Not even for a moment. I think this is the kind of vicious infighting that will get us exactly nowhere. I think it will guarantee that we stay small and fringe, which means that we're not helping as many young people as we otherwise might be. If someone in this movement has a political leaning or a personal life that you don't quite agree with, You don't have to support them, but you don't have to mob them online either. So let's reserve blacklisting and public shaming for the truly egregious crimes. Because we simply have bigger fish to fry, like figuring out finances. (laughs) Last month I spent two weeks as a guest at Dida Academy in Brooklyn, which is a tiny early stage learning center that refuses to choose a specific model at this point. They're just trying lots of different approaches and seeing what works for the kids who are actually showing up at their front door each day. Anyone who's worked at a small alternative school knows how precarious the finances can be, how difficult it is to turn anyone away when the life or death of your school hinges on just a few more enrollments. It's hard to pay staff what they're worth. It's hard to establish a big enough community to convince more families to join. And it's hard for founders to sustain their personal energy, let alone their bank accounts. Even longer, more established alternative schools suffer from founder syndrome. 
how will this organization continue when the charismatic and self-sacrificing founder leaves center stage? Questions like these are not sexy, they're not the same as debating pedagogy or democracy, but they may be what makes or breaks this movement. Controlled social science studies are something else that might solidify this movement. Gina Riley, of course, at Hunter College in New York, is the authority on the connection between unschooling and self-determination theory. And Peter Gray collaborated with Gina on a number of different surveys, um, which many people call proof that unschooling works. It's not proof. Uh, it's a survey of self-selected young people. And so we are most likely to hear from the ones who were successful <laughs> with unschooling. It's not proof. And uh, unfortunately, this fact gets lost in the headlines and the TEDx talk sound bites. But Peter Gray would be uh, the very first person to admit this. He does so in his books. He does so in a podcast interview I did with him. Uh, we could still benefit, and Peter says this too, from a few more hardcore academics like Gina, like Peter, to do highly controlled studies of self-directed learners. Uh, so if you are someone who's looking for a master's thesis topic, a PhD thesis topic, uh, go talk to Peter. He's got some very concrete ideas for you. You might need about a million dollars to run a good study too. So let's, let's do this. <laughs> Diversity is another place we have room to grow. On my speaking tour, I witnessed many schools and centers offering generous sliding scale tuitions that enable a very large degree of socioeconomic diversity. Homeschoolers and unschoolers are already fairly diverse in this regard. They represent a large range of incomes with unschooling families tending towards lower middle incomes. Of course, visit a typical alternative school or homeschooling conference, and chances are that you will witness a world that's still largely represented by white, middle-class, and two college-educated parent families. Alternative education is dominated by those who enjoy the most security to become innovators and early adopters of educational innovations, to borrow some language from the tech world. Yet there are no keep out signs posted in the alternative education space. And we're moving in the right direction. The most recent National Center for Education Statistics survey, which was in 2016, reported that 59% of homeschoolers are now white, which is about 10% more than the general public school population. 8% are black, which is about half as much as public school. 3% are Asian compared to 5% in public school. And here's the most interesting one. 26% of homeschoolers are now Hispanic, which is equal representation between the homeschooling and public school worlds. So this is a massive jump from the 7% of Hispanic homeschoolers that was reported by the NCES just four years prior in 2012. And admittedly, it may still be a statistical anomaly. We have to give it a little bit more time, but still it's trending in the right direction. Furthermore, about 15% of homeschooled children now live in a family where one or both parents do not speak English. So I don't believe it's a stretch to say, as the International Center for Home Education Research, which is a nonpartisan research group, says, 
that homeschoolers, quote, are increasingly looking like the overall U.S. population and less like the stereotypical white conservative Christian homeschooler of the past. Not Back to School Camp, the summer camp for self-directed teens where I've worked for a dozen years, recently instituted specific incentives for attracting more non-white campers. And Not Back to School Camp is and always has been an extremely welcoming place for queer and transgender youth. And this goes for most of the alternative schools and the self-directed learning centers that I've visited. So I think we're doing well, and let's continue to keep diversity and, <clears throat> diversity and inclusion on our minds, both because it's the right thing to do and because it's a non-negotiable condition for succeeding as any sort of 21st century social movement. I know that some people at this conference have been around the alternative education world for a long time. And perhaps to you, it feels like the real movement happened back in the 70s with the heyday of alternative schools or in the 80s and 90s when homeschooling was spreading everywhere. So what is the movement today? It's hard to tell without the benefit of hindsight. Uh, from my perch, I see a large diversification, both in terms of educational approaches and the makeup of our membership. I see increasing levels of stress and anxiety among young people with a clear connection to conventional schooling, which indicates that our work is more important than ever. I see public school, <clears throat> school districts getting into the game by offering flexible virtual school and homeschool support programs. And just think, how unthinkable was that just a decade or two ago? The movement is growing internationally as well. While the US is the clear leader in alternative schools, and homeschooling options and innovative public school options. There have been options flourishing for at least a few decades in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Israel, parts of Scandinavia, and continental Europe. And in most of these places, it's still way more acceptable to go to an alternative school than it is to homeschool. And the transition from going from a non-traditional K-12 into a traditional college or traditional job is still much trickier in other parts of the world. In North America, our system of two-year community colleges uh, is incredibly valuable in smoothing the transition from um, unconventional K through 12 into a four-year university. And the high school equivalency exams that we have, like the GED or the HiSET, are in institutional blessings for families who don't want to end their self-directed learning in the elementary school years. And I'd like to give a special shout out to the Clumlara School in this regard for helping homeschoolers all over the world uh, in more than 50 countries at this point, including Germany and Iran, to homeschool and unschool on their own terms and still graduate with an accredited high school diploma. So no matter where you live, there are more options today for taking your educational destiny into your own hands than ever before. I have my biases, I have my favorites, just like the rest of us, um, but I'm trying hard to take the long view and to look at these alternatives, big and small, public and private, home-based and school-based, structured and unstructured, highly self-directed and somewhat self-directed, <laughs> as living under the same big tent. I believe that the future uh, of the alternative education movement depends on our ability to set aside a certain degree of ideological difference 
in order to serve those who need us most. I think we need to continue spreading the word, especially via writing and high-quality media like the video documentaries we've seen this weekend. And we need to get together and problem-solve the very unglamorous parts of running small organizations. So let's continue to exist on the front lines of inclusiveness when it comes to race, class, sexual orientation, gender presentation, and yes, political leaning as well. We're living in the best time and place ever for self-directed learning and alternative education. Let's celebrate that, and let's also get down to business, because we have a lot to do. Thank you.